To some degree, I think you probably noted this morning that from the scriptures and the hymns and even to some degree from the prelude, the emphasis in the scriptures has been on the death of our Lord. And so even in the very songs that we've heard and the scriptures we've read, there's a somber note. You can't be lighthearted and silly about the death of Christ. You can't do a little commercial ditty and a jingle and act like, Jesus died, it is good, la, 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 la. It's serious business. The very Son of God died on the cross for sinners. So the songs take on the sense of the scriptures. And that's why you hear the minor key. You hear that foreboding sound. If you want to continue to walk through the idea and the theme, make sure you're here next Sunday. For the scriptures and the songs will coincide with the resurrection and the joy of the resurrection. And we certainly have joy in the death of Christ, but the reason we have it is for the purpose of his death and then that he was raised from the dead. Amen? So just a little mental note for you as we worship today to think about those things. We'll turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. If you were here in Bible study, I did some historical background and information to the ending of chapter 5 and the early portion of chapter 6. I won't rehash any of that. Just to make you aware, I think it's very clear from Scripture itself and from other uh, historical writings that uh, this person, Darius, is a historical figure. We are not speaking of fiction here. God is speaking of a real transaction in the kings and kingdoms of this earth and world from Belshazzar to Darius. Let's begin in verse 30 of chapter 5 and move into chapter 6. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could not find or they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together 
that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for thirty days, shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may, be it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast in the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed, and he set his mind on delivering Daniel, and even until sunset he kept exerting himself to rescue him. And these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. We're going to confront several issues this morning as we consider this portion of God's word. We're going to see some overarching issues in the world and in dealings with mankind. And we're going to watch the Lord give us evidence of how he works in the hearts of his people and how one man exemplifies what the Spirit of God does in the souls of believers. But our primary focus will be, will be to see the ways of the world in the context of what we see in the Scripture here. I'll get to more about Daniel's life and response later on, but this week we look at the context of the worldliness in these passages. Large nations need vast natural and human resources. Darius, or Cyrus, as I made a case for earlier this morning in Bible study, knew his empire had grown and he did not desire to suffer loss, as the scripture says. He needed to keep and gain resources to keep the empire moving forward. Furthermore, he desired to gain further wealth. And what did he do? He appointed three commissioners, Daniel was one of them, and under the commissioners were 120 administrators. Darius' concern for possibly suffering loss recognizes the inherent problems and difficulties with any large government group or corporation. Waste and laziness are part and parcel to the sinful human nature. 
When an organization is large enough, individuals will slack off in productivity and steal from the back rooms. Sometimes the organization or government is so large, people doze and rob in more open ways than even the back rooms. Another concern was probably taxation and tax payments. Without reliable people in charge, money could be lost through the proverbial cracks in the organization. Ultimately, Daniel was recognized as useful and trustworthy to complete his work and manage other people. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Um, Daniel's being put in charge of a government in a particular way that he would be acting on behalf of that government even in resources and monies and people. If you think about how much the Jews hated the tax collectors of Rome, here we have Daniel as one who's in charge of the whole of a government in that way, even so much so the scripture says the king had in his mind he was going to put Daniel in charge or over the entire kingdom. It just gives us a sense of understanding that Daniel is working inside of a context that may be difficult, but he's still doing his job, and he's doing it faithfully, even so much so that a pagan king recognizes how faithful Daniel is at his work. It also gives us a sense that we have to be thoughtful when we are doing our own work. Managing the wrong people often gets us in trouble. Sometimes who you work with, you're in situations that are difficult and tough, and you have to be thoughtful about managing certain people because they're not always going to be on your side or have your best interests in mind, and you have to take account for that. I think Daniel does that, and I think he does it by being faithful to God first. That's where his faithfulness lies in all things. There are three main points this morning. Daniel was marked as trustworthy once again. Daniel was maligned by corrupt officials once again. Daniel was moved by faith in God once again. Firstly, Daniel was marked as trustworthy once again. Note here in the scripture, the text is clear. Daniel distinguished himself from other officials. Firstly, he distinguished himself by godly strength of conscience. It says that he had a particular spirit about him. One writer notes, this spirit is described as excellent or surpassing. It refers not merely to Daniel's own determination faithfully to perform his tasks. It's not just that Daniel was a, you know, tighten up your bootstraps guy and get her done. There was something greater here. It says it refers also to the fact that God had bestowed or revealed would be a better word in my mind, revealed in Daniel a great portion of the work of the Spirit. All believers have the Spirit of God. God at times chooses to use believers in a way that the Spirit uh, is shown forth in revelation in greater measure. But the Spirit is not changed. God is not changed. There's not lesser of the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit. 
and the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, and it's not parts and parcels of the Spirit. It's just the Spirit. So we have to be thoughtful here that Daniel is a redeemed man of God, the Spirit of God indwelling him, and he moves in that faithfulness, and it's revealed to others that there is something different about his spirit. Think about it for a minute. He's not just a tighten up your bootstraps guy. He's a guy that's moved by the very understanding of who God is and the spirit of God dealing with his own soul. Well, secondly, he distinguished himself by unwavering convictions to righteousness. Distinguished himself by godly strength of conscience, and he distinguished himself by unwavering convictions to righteousness. If we look plainly at the text, it's pretty obvious in verses 4 and 5 that these satraps, maybe even the other two commissioners that were around him, They couldn't find any fault in Daniel. Not only could they not find any fault in him, they were thinking that they could because that would be the norm. Secondly, they were thinking that they could find fault in him, but also what they began to recognize is, in their own case, Daniel didn't allow certain unrighteousness to just go undealt with. He probably didn't allow laziness. He probably encouraged men to move forward in their jobs. He probably didn't allow thievery. Can you imagine Daniel to just turn a blind eye to plain thievery right in front of him? A man of this kind of character in that sense by God's grace alone? Not of himself, but what God had done in him? He would have been the kind of man to turn and say, put that back. That's not yours. He probably didn't encourage revolt. We don't see here that Daniel is a man raving all the time for revolution and revolt against every king. Matter of fact, every pagan king he works under, he's found faithful. One writer says, he's so faithful that Darius' intention in appointing overseers of his civil service is that the king might suffer no loss, that is, in territory due to uprisings, or in taxation due to graft. You have to remember, in this time in ancient history, uprisings and revolt were quite normal and usual. Matter of fact, if you just go watch the Romans, who are you know, uh, quite a bit after the Persian kings, if you just watch the Romans for a while, it's quite obvious there's a time where uprising, revolt, and assassination is pretty much standard act. One of the reasons Darius trusted Daniel so much is because he didn't fear that Daniel was going to assassinate him or have him assassinated. And you have to think, that's a real issue. You've heard the stories of kings who would have someone else, a taster, who would try the food first or drink the wine first. Why? They were always concerned Somebody was out to get them. Daniel could be trusted. He could be trusted. We have to note that Daniel 
distinguished himself by Darius's appointment. Think about this for a minute. Daniel, he was a Jew set up as a head executive. Now that's a big deal. Here's a pagan force that has come in and taken over Israel and Jerusalem through Babylon, the Babylonian captivity. Now the Medes and the Persians come in. They take over Babylon. And so in a sense, they inherit Jerusalem and the people of Israel all together. And the people of Israel were known for being this small group of of warring, defense-minded people, and they would go after anybody who would kind of come after them. Fair enough. Self-defense is important. But the Jews also had an air about them because they were God's people. And most of these nations were pagan nations which had many, many, many gods. And for one nation to cry out, there was only one God, and they served the one and only God, that was seen to be very arrogant. And yet, when Cyrus comes to power, he sets a Jew up as head executive. We're talking about more than likely, not, as, not only we know this is providence, we know that, God's ordering of all things, But we're also seeing in that providence that God had made Daniel a man of real character that stood out. God's work in Daniel was really something that was very, very noticeable. So much so that a pagan king who worshipped many gods would be willing to put a Jew in charge. But not only was he set up as a head executive under Darius, he was a Jew on his way up the ladder. You can see why these other commissioners and this 120 satraps or administrators, once again, we talked about early on in Daniel's life, the envy. Early on, he was a a young man who was envied. Now he's a little bit of an older man. He's, he's, He's a man. He's grown, Uh, he's been around a long time, and his character has not changed the whole time. His faithfulness to God has not changed. There's been seen no wavering in him in his faithfulness to God. And so he's put into an executive position, and now he's on his way up the ladder that Darius or Darius is going to put him over the whole kingdom. Well, these 120 administrators, at least a few of them, and probably one or two of these commissioners, you can imagine, they didn't like that. Envy, jealousy, the root sins of, of our own sinful hearts. All that takes over. You have to think for a moment how all of this was, was brewing. I mean, Daniel gives us some indication of it in the text, and it it sees or shows to us how they begin trying, in verse 4, to find a ground of accusation. Well, why would they have done that? If he's such a noble, nice guy, why would you go after him like that? 
Once again, it's envy and jealousy. He's going to be higher than them. And furthermore, it's very probable that he's one of the few Jews that's in charge of anything. If you're a good Eastern Mede or Persian, you probably don't take too well to the Jews ruling. So they're going to find an accusation. Well, that leads us to number two. Daniel was maligned by corrupt officials once again. Daniel was maligned by corrupt officials once again. We see in the text that Daniel was vetted by these accusers and he was found above reproach. It's noted by several writers the importance of seeing Daniel's professional ability. One writer says, they looked and found nothing. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. I mean, let's just think for a second, okay? Big government, lots of administrators, lots of money passing hands, lots of people to talk to. They go looking everywhere they can, trying to pull up every rock they can, passing money along to this person and that person, backroom channels, trying to find anything, and they found nothing. not saying Daniel was perfect, that he was Christ himself. We're just saying that he was a man who lived in godly character. And certainly it was by God's grace alone. You need to understand it's not as though all of these big government officials didn't have the ability to find something. They tried hard, but they didn't find it. One writer even says, in the discharge of his governmental duties, Daniel was found dilatory in no respect. Not one place could they find fault with him. He wasn't lacking in any of his work. He didn't leave things undone. He did his work right, and he was faithful. Even though he's working for a pagan king. Not only was he vetted and found above reproach, Daniel was envied and framed for godly loyalty. Daniel was envied and framed for godly loyalty. They were jealous of his position and his further rise in position. So ultimately, what did they do? They worked Daniel's faithfulness against him. That's interesting. Think about that for a minute. They could find nothing on him. He's, he's so faithful and honest that they, there's just no stone they can unturn to, to find the, the, the little piece of evidence under there of corruption. I mean, they were actually looking, according to the text, for evidence of corruption in verse 4. They just wanted one shred of evidence of corruption. Now, what's that tell you about their thinking? They could probably find it on just about anybody else, and they certainly could have found it on themselves. But they couldn't find it on Daniel. So ultimately, what do they do? 
verse 5, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. One writer says, an honest man of conviction in the midst of government or ecclesiastical politicians stands out like a fair flower in a barren wilderness. You don't think our Christianity living it out in daily life is important? Don't you understand we're living in a barren wilderness? Spiritually speaking? If we really understand the doctrine of depravity and we say that we understand the doctrine of sin rightly, do you realize every day that you leave your house to go do whatever it is you do? Or if you work from home and you're on the phone or Zoom calls or, or whatever technology you use to communicate with the world, do you not realize it's a barren wilderness? It's dead souls. They can't raise themselves. They're dead. And as believers walking around, we ought to look like the rare, beautiful flower that stands out in a barren wilderness. And Daniel did. By God's grace, not of his own works, but of the very work of God in him. Well, the only way they could work a plan against him, this beautiful flower in the barren wilderness of dead sinners, is they schemed in complete harmony. Notice when they come to the king in verse 6, they approach him, of course, King Darius lived forever. Seems to be a common theme. Every time you want the king to hear you out, you cry, Oh, king, live forever. Oh, and by the way, it's not going to happen, but we're going to say it anyway because we know that will ingratiate us to you and you might listen to what us peons have to say. So we'll tell you something that's completely false. But then in verse 7, it gets even worse. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction. Now the scripture is recording here what these men said before the king. What these men say before the king is that everybody in government is in agreement this is what you ought to do. When have you known everybody in government to be in agreement? The scripture is not giving us false information. It's telling us the falsity of the minds of the speakers. They had to scheme a plan in what they called complete harmony. They did act in harmony, but it's less likely that absolutely every single person agreed. Because in a government that large, it's probably hard to do. It's like us as Baptists. As Baptists, we don't agree on 100% of everything. That's what we're good at doing as Baptists. Well, this government was less likely to agree on those things. 
it's more likely they lied concerning the harmonious agreement, even though they said differently. And if you think for a minute that they didn't lie, how do I know they lied? Because everybody in government would have included Daniel. And you think Daniel agreed to the law? They never went to Daniel. So there was no agreement from 100%, even if they got 99. Because Daniel didn't agree, because they didn't consult him. They went behind his back. Power always makes men the worst of enemies to themselves and to the God who created them. Well, thirdly this morning, Daniel was moved by faith in God once again. These men go before the king. They plead for the injunction. The king agrees. 30 days, you worship no one but me. And he signs the injunction. And it, it's, it becomes law. The unalterable law of the Medes and the Persians. Well, in verse 10 it says, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Well, under this third point, we want to note several matters. Firstly, Daniel did not end his prayerful practice. He did not end his prayerful practice. Now, there seems to be some debate as to whether or not Daniel uh, did this in some kind of open revolt or if this was what his normal practice had been and so he just continued the exact regular normal practice of going to the roof chamber and having open windows and people could see what he was doing. At this point, I'm not sure that it really gets to the crux of the matter. It seems from the text very clear that he had already been doing this previously. His prayer had been continual prayer three times a day, praying and giving thanks, and he was going to the same place that he always went. I don't think you can make a case that this was some revolutionary act by Daniel. I think you can just make a case that Daniel was being faithful to do what he had been doing. But it also tells us not only did he not end his prayerful practice, but Daniel recognized the importance of prayer all the time. He didn't end the prayerful practice. And we see from the text, he prayed before his troubles, he prayed during his troubles, and he prayed after his troubles. I think we have to take into consideration the importance of believers being commanded to pray. And Daniel shows us 
faithful prayer in his life. Before trouble came, while the trouble was upon him, and even after the troubles subsided. Yes, we should read our Bibles. And we should be a people of prayer. Some prayers are uttered in less than a few seconds. In our minds, some prayers are uttered over minutes. But if we stop for one moment and pray even for 20 seconds, it is a recognition to God that he alone is in control of all things. And we are turning this matter in our own mind to him and recognizing that he alone has the power the strength, the purpose, and all of the understanding to work it to the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. But lastly, under this third heading that Daniel was moved by faith in God, not only did he not end his prayerful practice, and he recognized the importance of prayer all of the time, we have to note, too, that Daniel did not seek governmental mercy. In verses 11 through 15, we see the unfolding that these men saw Daniel praying. They immediately knew, gotcha. We got him, boys. There he goes. 30 days. He can't even go without praying to his God for 30 days. We got him. And they turned to the king, head that way. They tattle on Daniel like big snitches and crybabies. And when they do so, we don't even recognize in any way that Daniel turned and made a huge plea to the king. Aren't I your favorite? Daniel's faithfulness is to God and God alone. Let a human king who's considered the most powerful on the earth at the time, do what he wills and he wishes. But Daniel says, I'll serve but one God and one king. It's the Lord God himself. Now, he doesn't go after the king. We have no recognition of that, and we'll get more to him being in the lion's den and the unfolding of that later. But what we need to note in these verses all the way up to verse 15 is Daniel made no appeal to anyone else but God. But God. Well, that leaves us with four observations this morning. Number one, the world's craving is ultimate power over everything. The world's craving is ultimate power over everything. You want to know why all this stuff happening all around the world? It's a craving for power and the ultimate power over everything, even for individuals. When an individual, and, and those of you who are reading our home group, and the home group book is on dealing with anger and the, the issues of uh, biblical uh, foundations of dealing with anger, well, what, what is one of the main issues with our anger? We're angry over the fact that something didn't go the way we wanted it to. We wanted to have control over it. This is the way our sinful natures work. 
And humanity across the globe is always functioning in this way. They're craving power and the ultimate power over everything. Everybody's, not everybody, but a lot of people get shocked at how nasty American elections have gotten. Number one, they've always been nasty. Just read history on a lot of the presidential elections, even in the early portions of the 1800s, not to mention the latter portions of the 1800s. But we shouldn't be shocked that they're nasty. It's about power. It's who's going to be in power. They often even say it in newscasts. Who's going to have the power? The Democrats or the Republicans? It's about power. It's power on a global sense. It's power in a national sense. It's power in a state sense. But even in our own individual human hearts, left to ourselves, our craving is the ultimate power over everything. And that's what led Adam and Eve to succumb to the temptation of the serpent. Oh, he knows if you eat that fruit, you'll be like him. Well, gee, that sounds pretty good. I think I'll try that fruit then. That's just a craving for power. By God's grace, he's showing us that true believers like Daniel, they submit to the sovereignty of God. In all circumstances, even when the world's power comes against you, they first of all submit to God. It doesn't mean they don't do other things. It doesn't mean there aren't other actions to take in certain circumstances. But it does mean that the very first thing that any believer does in tumultuous times, whether it's globally, nationally, state level, local level, whether it's in your own job, whether it's in your own home, the first thing that any believer does is submit to the very sovereignty of God. And the best way to do that is to go before him in prayer, submitting yourself to him. Secondly, the world's trick is to use godly faithness against the Christian. The world's craving is ultimate power over everything. The world's trick is to use godly faithfulness against the Christian. It's the only measure these other men had was to take Daniel's own faithfulness to his God and turn it against him. We have to be wise to this. We have to be thoughtful about this. If we go down being faithful to God, so be it. So be it. But let's not get into the trap of trying to trick ourselves to think that we can work the ways of the world and think that's being faithful to God. You know how adamantly I'm opposed to abortion. You know how much I loathe it and I hate it. And I think the world is going to use those types of things against us as believers to persecute us, to try to bring us under their submission. 
But that does not mean that my role as a Christian is to now turn into an assassination artist and assassinate every doctor who performs an abortion. That's me taking the world's trick and trying to turn it around in an unfaithful way. Should our national leaders do something about abortion? Amen, they should. And if they don't continue to do something about it, God will deal with this country. You can, this is not Pat Robertson garbage I'm putting out to you. God's judgment will be upon any nation that willingly, willingly kills unborn children. It will come to an end. Ask Rome. Ask Rome. But I have to be very careful how I act. And whatever I choose to do, it needs to be biblically thought out. Carefully. I'm not calling for non-action. I'm calling for thoughtful action. Careful action. But the first and the greatest action is to consult the word of God, spend time in it. The second careful action is to pray through the truths of God's word and then act appropriately according to God's word alone and nothing else. Daniel had this trick played on him. And it's interesting here how he submitted. The only thing he didn't do was stop what God had commanded him to do. And God commanded him to pray and give thanks, and he would not stop it. Thirdly, the world's hunger is to dictate the worship of God. The world's hunger is to dictate the worship of God. Here is where I see the crux of Daniel's issue. We're not just looking at things that are just kind of ancillary. We're looking at things that are very specific here. This was about the worship of God. This was specifically about how God was to be praised, thanked, and worshipped, and he commanded prayer, and Daniel said, no, I will not stop that. If the government told us that we are not to meet on the Lord's Day in public worship, I think I can say the elders here would say no. We will meet. Now, does that mean we'll put a flashing sign out wherever we meet? Hey, come murder all our people while we worship. We want you to have a flashing sign, and we'll give you interstate signs so you know how to find us. No, we probably won't do that. That's called antagonizing people for the purpose of stupidity. If they find us, so be it. We'll let them figure that out and see how smart they are. We'll find out what the Lord's plan is for us. But we will not stop the worship of God, for he has commanded us to worship him. And we will do it. We will do it. If they come to us and say, you cannot pray in your homes, we will say no. Cannot pray in your car, we will say no. If they figure out in our artificial intelligence that they try to find out we're praying in our cars by reading our minds, that sounds completely 
scientific, uh, science fiction craziness to me, but in the world we're living in, I don't know anymore. Well, you know what? If they figure all that out, so be it. If I'm in my car and I pray, then have the police pull me over. Write me a ticket for praying to God with the radio off. I don't know what it'll be. Daniel's issue here is not ancillary matters. It's the very worship of God. It's the praise of God. It's the thanks of God. That's where he says no. That is the line. There may be other places that we could consider this line, but ultimately it's when the world tries to dictate the very worship of God that we say no. Fourthly and lastly, the world's attempt to dictate worship is an attempt to become God. The world's attempt to dictate worship is an attempt to become God. I'm not going to encourage people for their lifelong sinful dream of becoming God. So we'll say no to certain things. But I would also like us to ask some questions about ourselves. What is left in our souls in remaining flesh and sin? where there are times we're trying to become God. If I'm going to cast aspersions on the world, and rightly so because the scripture plainly calls it into question, what about my own remaining flesh? What attempts has the modern church made to dictate worship when the Bible is plainly spoken about what worship is and what it is meant to be and what it's taught to be? and what it's commanded to be prescribed. What about our own souls and worship on the Lord's day? Is it just the Lord's few hours for us? Or do we give attention to the Lord for the whole of the day in some way? Even if you take a nap and rest, amen, hallelujah, your body needs it. That's a great thing that God has done. But to wake up from your nap and act as if there's nothing more that could be done so we just go do the things of the world? Let's be thoughtful and say to our God, if we're so worried about what the government's going to do, let's first give to God what he's commanded of us and give him his due. And trust me, he will eventually take care of this world. As we said this morning, it's going to end terribly for any challenger of God's word. These satraps and commissioners, it doesn't end well for them. But there's nothing any human king could do to any of them that's any worse than what the God of heaven and earth will do when he sends his son to return. In one sense, that's a statement of judgment. In another sense, it's a statement of pity. All I can ask is the Lord find me faithful when he comes. Because I'm prone to sin myself. I'm prone not 
to take his day. Seriously, sometimes I should just because I want to break. I'm prone to look at other people in the world and find all of their problems before I see my own sin. I'm prone to be arrogant enough to think I could solve all the world's problems if people would just listen to me. Instead of doing what Daniel did, go before the Lord daily, thanksgiving and prayer, submitting to him. And when you submit to him, you submit to his word. Stay in and with the word and the Lord and his word will stay with you. Joshua 1 a. Amen. Heavenly Father, you see the world crashing in on your people. You see the world hating your people. But we are thankful that through the ages you have sent those, even who are unbelievers, who have had points of mercy like Osiris. If it be your will, Lord, give us Osiris. For right now our own country seems far too gone. Far too gone to have a a true believing government. We lift our leaders up to you and ask, Lord, that you turn their souls. Lord, most of all, we ask that you would turn our souls, that we would be the fair flowers in the barren wilderness, showing the beauty and the glory of your gospel at work in the souls and lives of your people. We pray this and ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.